Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. First, let me just say that the pollen season is kicking my butt. Every time I walk outside, I look like lemon pepper wings. Goodness gracious, it is winning the battle. But I know we're all going through so much, but hey, at least we're outside. And if you're vaccinated, you can take your mask down and breathe again. And I also want to say a very special thank you to everyone for downloading, subscribing, sending me emails about suggested guests, all of those things. Thank you so much. Today, we'll be interviewing author and one of the members of the Exonerated Five, Yusef Salam. Um, Some of you all call them the Central Park Five. We call them, rightfully so, the Exonerated Five. But before uh, we get to Yusef, I wanted to recognize the one-year anniversary of George Floyd's death and talk a bit about the progress we've made and haven't made on police reform since his death. Taking this from one of my friends at Campaign Zero, only one state has repealed its law enforcement officer's Bill of Rights. The state laws that often shield police officers from accountability and fair investigations. Only six states have outlawed no-knock raids like the one that killed Breonna Taylor. Only 18 states have restricted how officers can use deadly force. And America's largest cities only cut police budgets by about 5%. And we've still got the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act still very much in the air. Shout out to my friend Tim Scott, to my friends Karen Bass and Cory Booker for trying to get this done. So why haven't we made more progress and what do we do about it? Well, for starters, we've got a lot of scared Democrats who won't push the envelope on reform. That's mayors who won't rein in their police and lead on reform. That's state legislators who still take cues from law enforcement as to what constitutes reform. And that's some moderate Senate Democrats who think that because there are no protests in the streets, we'll accept a watered down George Floyd Justice and Policing Act in the name of bipartisanship. We've got to make police reform a part of the Democratic playbook the same way we've made climate change and reproductive choice. I'm all for big tents in the Democratic Party, but we don't have room in our party anymore for climate deniers, for example, and we need to make it that way on policing. The other thing to consider is that we're decades behind law enforcement in making the system unfair. They've spent years writing and passing laws that shield them from accountability, electing judges and prosecutors and even medical examiners that align with them, and they have stacked the deck. It'll take us some time to unstack it. But that starts by making sure that at least the Democrats we elect understand that we need to be just as committed to reform as some Republicans are to status quo. And that's that on that. Now on to this amazing episode that I want everybody to listen to with a good friend of mine, Youssef Salam. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. 
the luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Man, today is a very special episode of the Bakari Sellers podcast, and it's a special episode for the entire Spotify network because I have none other than Youssef Salam from the Exonerated Five. How are you doing today, my brother? Oh, my goodness. I am doing extremely well. Thank you for having me on your show. No, I'm glad to be here. You know, we start each one of our shows by having our guests introduce themselves to the listeners by usually we have them walk through their career, where they went to school, how they became who they are. But I think for you, it's worth spending time getting listeners to understand your story, who the Exonerated Five are, and your life since the 2002 uh, overturning of your convictions. So for our listeners who may not be familiar with the Exonerated Five or you, talk us through your life arc from 1989 to now. You know, I, I think when you look at the members of the Exonerated Five and my life in particular, you will see that our story really did not begin with us being vilified and produced to the world as pariahs, as the scum of the earth. The introduction of our lives began with us coming out of our mother's wombs, mm-hmm. of us standing on the shoulders of great ideas and dreams and hopes and aspirations that they had and that we started to have for ourselves. <laughs> and quite unfortunate for us, we were awakened to the American nightmare in many ways as described as Malcolm X, you know, we wanted the American dream, but that American nightmare has taught us and shown us that there are two Americas, that we were never united, we are divided and unequal. And it's been screaming that in more modern times when we look at George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and countless others. I mean, these are just some of the names that we've known about and we've heard about. And there's so many people that we have never heard about that have gone to their deaths having been awakened to the American nightmare as myself. You know, but the Central Park Jagger case was such an interesting setup that I, I refer to it in my book, Better Not Bitter, as actually a love story between God and his people. Mm-hmm. And I refer to it as that way because, you know, we're talking about man plans and God plans, right? God is the master chess player, if we can uh, imagine it as that. God is the master chess player and even the master chess players that are the greatest masters of life are still playing checkers on that board, right? Here it is, the scheme is set up. God is creating this this scenario where the Central Park Jaga case itself is going to be used to place the whole American criminal justice system on trial. Mm. It's gonna be used for people to understand that as we began with the words, we the people, that Black and brown bodies were considered three-fifths of a human being, and that has never been ratified. And so the idea that the word slavery can be placed in the Constitution as part of the 13th Amendment, and the idea that Congress has the power to enforce those rules, right? Now we have to understand, as we weave through historical references, experiences that we are now seeing and feeling ourselves, how this all plays out. That this is not happenstance. The Central Park Jagger case is not an anomaly. It's not an episode, right? This is systemic. 
So I want to I want to piggyback on that moment real quick, because I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about when they see us. It's a critically acclaimed film uh, by by our good friend, Ava DuVernay, and it captured your story. Right. I can't imagine what it's like to endure what you did. I mean, be exonerated and essentially see this trauma retold through this picture. Can you talk a bit about how you compartmentalize the personal and private and the pain that's associated with your incarceration? and the very public nature as a member of the Exonerated Five? You know, one of the things that we've done, and I say we um, because I've heard other members of the Exonerated Five speak in very powerful ways, right? A lot of times we have to examine ourselves outside of ourselves in order to describe what it is that we had gone through. And so with regards to me in particular, a lot of times I have this out-of-body experience where I'm only able to really do a deep dive in what this story means and has meant, if I can only separate myself a bit mm-hmm. to be able to look at it, right? Ava DuVernay gave us the great opportunity and really gave the opportunity to the world to be reintroduced to the best of ourselves, right? When they see us, I think was such a brilliant, beautiful title that it wasn't just about the five of us, it became the all, those of us who have this skin color, who will never be able to be disarmed and will never be able to be seen as not having a weapon because the system sees that you are armed. The system sees that you are a crime. Mm -hmm. And the best thing about our story is that we are human beings, right? We began to become more humanized through the depiction of when they see us. And rightly so, because we needed our humanity back. But more importantly, we needed to know for us, those of us who are going through or those of us who are growing through trauma, those of us who are growing through prison industrial complex experiences, whether outside on the ins or on the inside, we needed to know that psychosocially we mattered, right? Mm. That we were not born a mistake, that we don't have to move throughout our lives as if we are crimes that we can rise above the definition that they have placed upon us, that definition that says we can only be in survival mode. And so therefore, what do people do when they have to survive? Anything and everything. We we watch homeless people dig out of trash cans. I mean, we've been told when we were children, the, the five the five second rule, right? If it fell on the floor, we got five mm-hmm. seconds to pick it up before it gets completely contaminated. And then we blow it off and we eat it. I mean, it's a it's an interesting dynamic when you're placed in a survival reality. And that crime happens in the black and brown community all the time. That is powerful. I mean, I, I'm I'm writing my second book now, and part of it I'm talking to my son Stokely. And in that we talk about trying to get out of that survival mode, just teaching him that he can just be. That's very powerful. Before I get to your new book, though, speaking about young people. And your new book has a great title. I mean, you you uh, you had this unique ability from when they see us to better, not bitter, just to draw people in. I, I want to talk about your advocacy around prison reform and juvenile justice reform, because, you know, some people just see y'all as, as celebrities. Some people see you guys as lightning rods or political uh, this or that. But you literally do the work first for people who may not understand what. Uh, what you mean when you say these terms. How do you describe the work you do around reforming prison and juvenile justice reform? You know, the the way I describe it really is just 
a labor of love. It's a beautiful struggle to be able to understand that you were uniquely positioned for this, right? You are the diamond that became a diamond. How? Only because you were put under tremendous pressure. Every one of us wants success in life, right? Mm -hmm. But to do what it is that becomes successful, to grow yourself in a way that you become successful, to make yourself better for any situation that you find yourself in and not bitter or embittered by the situation is a tremendous feat. And that, for me, it only happens when you let go and let God, you know, it's something that we quite often hear about, but to be able to describe it in a way that gives people direction, that tells people you too can turn up your light in this world of darkness and offer not only guidance, but for yourself, you can guide it. You can guide mm -hmm. yourself because of what you, now you can see all of a sudden, you know? I mean, this case, I think, has activated us in a really powerful way so that we can really push forward the idea that we need not like when, when I heard the young people pour out into the streets and overwhelmingly erupt with the new conversation of things like abolition, yep. of things like defund, for me, I knew what the definition of those words meant. But the system quickly swept in and began to define for us as a people what they were talking about. And it did such a tremendously horrible job because now forever in the minds of people are the ideas of being in, in a state of abolition means that you live without laws. That is absolutely not what young people are saying. That is absolutely not what we have ever been saying as people in general, right? One thing we have to remember is that we have never, as a people who know the true history of what happened, we've never wanted revenge. We've only wanted equality. That's the good nature of who we are. But supremacy feels like your quest for equality equals my oppression. That's the definition of supremacy. And you know what? That definition comes from the law of lack, where we live in the law of abundance. Right. We can yeah. literally like if, if, if you were placed into a social experiment called a project, and I'm using that as an example, because when people looked at the Central Park Five, some of us, we lived in Schomburg Plaza and those who lived in King Towers or any of the projects that were around us, they looked at Schomburg sometimes almost as this like twin towers on the northern end of the park. We were in a vertical project, mm -hmm. the same ideas. The same reality, the same experience that people had in the project, we were experiencing, right? The only difference is that we could see from a higher level, right? We could see the skyline of the city that we could never really attain. And so the beauty of it is being able to understand that you were put into this situation. Many of us don't know the historical reality of redlining, that we are still experiencing redlining to this day. They don't know. Right. And so when we connect those things together, carefully weaving the tapestry of our true history, then we understand who we are, where we are, why we are, what we are. And then we can really have the discussion of how are we? Because that mental reality has to take hold. A lot of us are being run over by mental realities that do not represent anything healthy for ourselves. And so we tend to become self-destructive, right? And the true thing that we really have to do for ourselves is look at our lives and 
activate our lives. Agitate, agitate, agitate has been said so often by our elders. Because as soon as we stand up, like my grandmother was telling me often while she was alive, writing me letters to Master Yusuf Salam, this mm. mythical figure that I would grow into, she was telling me to straighten my back. She was telling me that I was born on purpose. I was not born a crime. And I think for the most part, we have to see ourselves in that truth so that we can provide true justice for ourselves initially and allow the great creator to take over and to take hold of our lives and make us into shining light, eradicating the darkness around us. Because the social experience that we are experiencing today, white supremacy, white male dominance has been as has been carefully explained, it exists because we allow it. It exists yeah. because we allow it. If we decided tomorrow that it ceases to exist, and that doesn't, that doesn't kill anybody, right? What it does is it allows for the now kaleidoscope of the human family to be the people that we know we are. We are the people. Let me ask you a question, though. I want to talk about the Innocence Project really quickly. But before I get to that, how do you still have this outlook? You and I both share the same outlook that nothing necessarily, and I've been saying this a lot, and people on my show know I say it a lot, nothing is necessarily irredeemable. We just have to reimagine these systems. Right? That's our task, to agitate, to reimagine. But how did you end up in this place where you have this outlook and you've gone through something? You were in prison. You were, you mean, you were on Rikers Island. You went to prison for a crime you did not commit. You've done the darkest of times. You know, members of the Exonerated Five have been just brutalized beyond belief. So how do you still have that outlook? I think a lot of it, and I speak about this in my book, Better Not Bitter, it, it's about what you come into the world with. It's about what you come into the room with, what you come into any situation with, right? Knowing who you are, knowing that you were born on purpose and with a purpose. My mother had to remind me, of course, early on. And in the reminder, she said something very powerful to me. You know, we see this depicted in the great series, When They See Us, that Ava DuVernay really released to the world. And what we see is my mother coming into the interrogation room. Her cape is still blowing in the wind. She's my modern day Shiro. She's a mm -hmm. superhero, right? She is coming into there and physically pulling me out of the clutches of the enemy. What you don't see, which is, which is part of the truth of what happened, is my mother had just a moment with me. Because in the next scene, you see that I'm still in bondage. I'm, 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 I'm arrested. I'm, I'm there. I'm back with the guys, right? In the holding cells. But what you don't see is what my mother said to me. She said, and, the, and this is one of the reasons why I never had a written or videotaped confession, because she said to me, stop talking to them. Mm -hmm. And then she said to me. She had, good I, sense, she had good sense, as we say down south, right? Oh, my goodness. My mother's born in the Jim Crow South. Right? She had very <laughs> good sense. Right? But what she said to me is something that I will never forget. I mean, here I am, 15 years of age. I'm, 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 I now have to grow up very fast. I need to know how to fly. I'm being kicked out of the nest. And not because my mother is doing that, but because a angry vulture has swept in and picked at one of the feathers and pulled me out of it. Now I have to figure out how to fight and tussle with it and fly away. 
She said to me, they need you to participate in whatever it is that they're trying to do. Do not participate, she said. Refuse. That has been my truth all along. I cannot participate in my own destruction. Even during COVID-19, what was the biggest, right, essential uh, businesses in the black and brown community, which is really throughout the world, but it is, it is, it becomes a tragedy in the black and brown communities because in some communities, there's a liquor store on every corner, mm-hmm. right? And what do people do when they're messed up? They try to fix the problem by numbing themselves, right? And I'm not talking about people who partake socially. I'm talking about you know, people who have become fall down drunks, whose names have been changed from the great men that they have to be or great women that they have to be to the wild Irish rose name or the Hennessy name or the this or the that. And like I said, I'm not talking about people who socially partake, but when you use these medicinal options to numb yourself to the reality of life, it becomes catastrophic because in the era of COVID-19, we all should be emerging with one foot up, right? You just said something earlier about people coming out with their best work. Why is that? Because they had an opportunity to really sit down for a moment, to re-examine life, to understand what was important yesterday is not the things that are important today. And it becomes a powerful moment for us to forge a way forward. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Let's get into Better Not Bitter. Talk to me about what's this. I know what it's about. I read it. I get all these copies beforehand. It is a dope <laughs> book. Uh, we, we There are a lot of good books, but to learn about what's going on uh, in the world around us, one year since George Floyd, 100 years hmm. since Tulsa, hmm. and now you have this. Talk to folk about what this project is about. You know, Better Not Bitter for me was more than just a labor of love. It was more than me just being able to tell my story in the widest position possible, right? I didn't want to just say, you know, this is what happened. I grew up as a child and all of this stuff. No, I needed you to understand that as a Black child, we have a long history that we come through that in our stories are the realities of a person like Akunta Kente, who, when I went to Gambia, I'm sorry, when I went to Senegal and the, and the people that I was with went on to Gambia, they were talking to the Gambians and they asked them about this mythical character in our community named Kunta Kente. And I say mythical because the way we've been socialized in many ways have been a way where we are told, you know, why are you talking about slavery? Especially young people, they don't want to hear nothing about slavery. They feel like slavery was so long ago when it was just yesterday. And guess what? Through technology in the black and brown communities, there has been a seed that has been growing in our gardens, in our hearts, in our minds. Mm -hmm. And that seed is a seed that has been teaching us that we're going to be dead or in jail before we reach the age of 21. 
And I needed to tell people that you are not a crime. That that same definition that you have accepted for yourself, who, which one of you has physically wrote that down as a plan for your life? No one raises their hand. And lo and behold, now they see, how did that become a part of my truth? It's because systemically they want you to participate in your own demise. Do not participate, refuse. My story is the story of survival in America. It's the story of standing on the shoulders of giants that are our ancestors. It's the story of true faith and how you hold on to that. And it's also the story of going back in a very Sankofa-like way to retrieve how do you explain your survival to others so that they get the opportunity to not just see you as a survivor, but they get the opportunity to see that they too can survive anything. Because mm-hmm. if, 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 if the great philosopher, as I call her, Cardi B says, knock me down nine times, I'll get up 10. That's right. If my good friend Les Brown says, it's not a matter of if you fall in life, but when you fall, try to land on your back. Because if you can look up, you can get up. This is how you become resilient. Life is shaping you into becoming a survivor. And when you look back, and you understand the poem footprints that God was carrying you when you saw only one footprint in the sand, you become aware, thankful, humble, prayerful that you are the modern day Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Not even smelling like smoke after you've been thrown in the fire. Mm. Resilient. As someone who's, who's in the middle of my second book, I always admire people who have multiple books under their belts. And Better Not Bitter isn't your first rodeo. What did you learn from previous books? And how was what you took from your previous experiences as an author reflected in Better Not Bitter? Well, I got to tell you, my first book is a self-published book called Words of a Man, My Right to Be. I've never is read. It? I got to go get that one. <laughs> this book is being sold exclusively out of my garage. <laughs> oh, I was like, I ain't never seen that one before. So <laughs> yeah, I still, I still have copies. Actually, I'm about to start um, reselling on the on the store again on my website, YusufSpeaks.com. But that really, for the most part, were statements and sayings and mantras that I needed to be able to read in my lowest moments, so that I can remember what it was that I was fighting for. Right. I write in there, the revolution will not be televised. And I end up saying, I am the revolution. I write in there that um, I'll meet you in between Venus and Mars, talking about being in the stars, but also what is in between Venus and Mars, the planet Earth. And more importantly, if I meet you on the planet Earth, or more importantly, meet you on the ground, now you know where your true camaraderie is, right? And so I needed to be able to say these words to myself. Words of a man, my right to be, became the foundation for punching the air, right? We couldn't tell my story because I was in contract with with, with Netflix and uh, we were creating a film when they see us. And so we created a fictional character named Amal, which means hope. And we wanted people to understand that they placed hope in prison. And so there's all of these Easter eggs, these nuggets that we are trying to use where people, if they get the opportunity to have their mind sparked, they can see this stuff. And of course, it gave way after being a New York Times bestseller celebrated in that particular way of my, my memoir. I needed to be able to tell my story. And it's showing up at this moment and almost like 
it was perfectly created and designed to be revealed at this moment. Mm. Almost on the two-year anniversary of when they see us. Yes. You know, being a celebrated person in society now who is seen as famous and not infamous, understanding how humbling that is because we don't look at ourselves in many ways as famous, right? We see ourselves as regular individuals having survived this traumatic experience because we can never forget. But it is a powerful thing to realize that through the use of word, through the written page or through the audible listening device, people get the opportunity to do what we did as we were children. And what is that? We use our minds in the most powerful ways. Even if we read a book, we read our, we read a book and we began to imagine on the movie screen of our minds what that looked like. And it gave us an out. Like for me, being in prison, I could read about people who were able to escape prison, not necessarily because it's a prison story, but because they're using books and magazines and articles and their mind, which is their most powerful weapon to free themselves from the bondage that they find themselves in. Where can folk find this book? Because I want them to go. I get mine free from the publisher. So where, where you want folks to go out and buy this book so they can get it? Listen, Better Not Bitter, if it's not at your local bookstore, request it to be there. You can find it at Barnes and Nobles, Amazon. You can find it really wherever books are sold. Punching the Air is out there as well on all platforms. Words of a Man, My Right to Be is being sold exclusively through my website, Yusef Speaks. You can follow us on social media, Dr. Yusuf Salam on uh, Instagram and on Twitter, uh, Yusuf Abdul Salam on Facebook and Dr. Yusuf Salam on my public page on Facebook. And of course, on, on LinkedIn, Yusuf Salam. I'm trying to figure out the Snapchat thing and TikToks and all of that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I, I, you, I have a 15 year old daughter, so I'm trying. I try, <laughs> but that's this is. This is all I got, my brother. Thank. This has been an enriching, thoughtful, and you got my you got my brain going. I'm over here taking notes too as you te- as you as you're speaking. And this book was dope. I even have it tabbed. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your story. My heart goes out for everything that you went through. But I feel like you're you know God sent some of us through the storm so you can be a light for others. So I, I greatly appreciate that. Thank you, my brother. My pleasure, my pleasure. And I love following you as well, man. You're yeah, doing man. great work. Man, we're going to be in touch. As soon as the Rona lets us be great, we'll come up and, <laughs> and, and uh, we'll, we'll hang out a little bit, okay? Yes, sir. Absolutely. I look forward to that. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Before I let you go, I wanted to talk about some good news. I'm going to be brief with this because you don't really want to spoil it too much. But good news out of New York this week that the former president, 45, may have some severe legal trouble. In case you missed it, state prosecutors in New York City convened a special grand jury into the Trump organization, the former president himself, and his family. There's also the Atlanta-based probe in Trump's efforts to overturn the election results in Georgia and the investigation into the U.S. Capitol insurrection. This is something for us to watch, and I pray for the strength of these prosecutors to do their thing and to confirm what we know. And that's that we had a criminal run the country and there may be actual real justice. I don't know about Atlanta, but definitely in New York. So in addition to getting out this summer, you know, the streets are calling your name and getting back to normal. We might also see criminal charges brought against the former president before it's all said and done. And that's that on that. We got a special Memorial Day episode. And, you know, I love NASCAR. We got an up and comer Hayden Swank joining us on the Bakari Sellers podcast. See you guys on Memorial Day.